This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, an invigorating instant of incisiveness in an insidious world. It's like the Joe Rogan experience. If by Rogan you mean Alton, that's me, <laughs> Joe Alton, MD, also known as Doctor Bones of the award-winning survival website DoomandBloom.net. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. I'm purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so smart, Mensa has to take a test to join her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> On this show, you're going to get all the information you need to know about rocket science. Rocket science? Rocket science. It's not rocket science, actually. <laughs> what is it, then? <laughs> but you are going to get the conventional medical wisdom, and you're going to get the unconventional medical wisdom, news that you can use to get your family medically prepared for times of trouble. But you got to listen to this first. Pay attention. Absolutely. All information and opinions voiced on this survival medicine podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. Or don't, if that's the way you roll, bro. But what happens in a disaster <laughs> when... The hospitals are full. There's nowhere else to turn. Well, you know what? When it's least expected, you're elected as medic, that is. So you better get off your duff, learn some stuff before your get up and go gets up and goes. And went. And goes, right. And then it went. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Hey, before we get started, I just want to mention that the new greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook is still hot on the shelves. If you haven't gotten our recently revised and bigger expanded new book greatly expanded <laughs> yep check it out on amazon or if you want a color copy or one that's autographed go to store.doomandbloom.net we also have black and white copies there too yep okay on with the show hey you know if you want to see a sign of a society in disarray consider the loss of public trust in our healthcare leadership to provide honest information these days I think that it's almost impossible to get the real story, the real deal, out of our medical experts. And that's because of the dishonesty of some of the people that we're supposed to believe have our best interests at heart. The most important and powerful figures in medicine these days seem to have abandoned the science and have crafted a strategy to keep the populace in a constant state of fear even when there's good reason to lift the burdens that have kept the nation in a downward spiral for, gosh, well, a couple of years now. Mass mandates are just one example. We've talked about those before. There's a boo in the background there. (laughs) State, local, and federal governments often make the claim that they're following the science when it comes to COVID-19. But what few people realize is the extent to which the science can be manipulated to match a particular agenda. Instead of survival of the fittest data, it's survival of what fits a political narrative. Medical authorities are no longer objective, but feel they have to advance a particular worldview. And it's not one that bodes well for the future, not for you or for me. Last year, as a matter of fact, 1,300 health officials signed a letter claiming that white supremacy was a lethal public health issue that contributed to COVID. In the letter, they specifically supported BLM protests despite statements that mass gatherings were dangerous super spreader events. To the contrary, they stated that the often violent protests were important to the national public health. That's great, maybe, for politicians. Politicians' faith in the opinions of the medical experts serves a purpose for them, 
It separates them from the blame for faulty recommendations. Why? We were just following the science, they say. But what happens when a medical expert is invested politically and tries to herd us into a particular corral? The goals of a medical expert, even an unbiased one, they're different from that of a politician. The medical expert is concerned with preventing every bad outcome that can occur from the presence, let's say, of a virus in the country. That means that they're going to recommend measures that are so strict that they achieve that goal, even if it means putting every citizen in their own personal bubble for, well, two years right now. This is, in some cases, due to idealistic but very impractical motives. In other cases, these measures are used as hedges against malpractice suits and the kind of civil liability that occurs from being too lax. It's a great time to be a lawyer, that's for sure. In the worst-case scenario, politically motivated experts may cynically recommend strict measures to actually wear down the citizen support of a government. This was used by the left to take out Donald Trump in 2020. Their motto was, never let a crisis go to waste politically. If the new normal makes people sick and tired enough, they're going to blame somebody. And it's usually not the medical expert, although I guess Dr. Anthony Fauci is beginning to come under some scrutiny and may become a very well overdue exception. So medical and social media influencers refuse to consider things like hydrochloroquine and ivermectin, not on their merits, but because the mean orange man spoke favorably of them. They even refused the vaccines of Trump's Operation Warp Speed. Of course, as soon as he was kicked out, they did an about-face and made the very same vaccines mandatory to the point that you might lose your job over them or have to show a vaccine passport to get into certain venues, even maybe a local restaurant in some areas. It started with healthcare workers and spread to the military, federal employees, even local businesses. It took a Supreme Court decision to roll some of these back, but some are still in place. One thing that doesn't concern medical experts much is their effect, the effect that their recommendations have on a society's economy and other collateral damage. They point to the science, quote unquote. Look, we're saving lives, even while the fabric of an entire nation unravels. That's what's happening now to our children. What's happening to children who can't see other kids' faces or their teachers' faces? I mean, I think that that is something that's damaging, and it's not just my opinion. Consider these three studies of young infants and the implications they hold for relationships, emotional relationships. In one study, they took four-month-olds and they evaluated them for signs of distress when the mother was separated from them physically compared to when the mother was actually present but presenting a completely emotionless face. It turns out that the babies were more distressed looking at an empty expression from their mother than from actual physical separation, suggesting that emotional unavailability is more troubling than physical absence. In another study on what they call social referencing, the data determined that very young children use emotional expressions, things you can't see when you have a mask on, as guides in approaching or withdrawing from both physical and social stimuli. And a third study showed that a mother's physical presence but emotional unavailability not only distressed the child but inhibited exploring social connections whereas being emotionally available had a beneficial effect, a significant beneficial effect, on an infant's social and exploratory behavior. So don't tell me there isn't damage caused by what we're doing to our kids by changing their lives so much that they can't even get social clues from people's faces. This might be acceptable if children were dying right and left from COVID, but that's not the case. In fact, there have been about 710 deaths as of a month ago, of children in the United States during the entire pandemic. That's 400 less than have died from the flu during the same time period. 710 deaths out of tens of millions of known cases. 
A National Health Service study concluded that children under the age of 18 who contracted COVID-19 had a 99.995% chance of surviving. The studies that I mentioned have been out for decades, by the way. This is not new stuff, so the effects on kids are not a surprise. The medical experts certainly knew about them, but in a misguided attempt to have zero cases of COVID, an absolute impossibility, they didn't hesitate to shut society down. They're still doing it in a lot of places. And the politicians are glad to say they're just following the advice of the experts. They're following the science, aren't they? Well, in general, politicians love to have these experts make decisions and recommendations for them, but implementing advice from scientists does get them in trouble wherever free-thinking people exist. For some reason, the big shots didn't realize how much lockdowns would result in wide-ranging consequences. I did. I bet you did, too, out there. Public health policy involves a lot more than just, well, public health. The process of putting together task forces, advisory committees, things like that, employs a lot of politics. Once task forces are populated with experts, politicians are hoping for sympathetic treatment from their appointees, right? I, I appointed you, so you better do what I want you to do. After all, the medical experts owe their jobs to them. These appointees may be doctors, but they're really mostly administrators, even if they have MD or DO after their names. Like their bosses, they act politically, and they can erase physicians that are working on research or the front lines that don't happen to agree with them. I don't mean putting them in jail. I mean destroying their reputations. That works just fine to get them out of the picture. This is exactly what they tried to do with doctors like those in the frontline COVID-19 critical care committee. That's a group that has collected tons of data that goes against the medical established. They've shown, for example, dozens of studies that show beneficial effects of the drug ivermectin against COVID. Ivermectin has been on the market for decades, has a great safety profile. Although I'm glad that there are new oral COVID treatments that I've talked about, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. Well, ivermectin is exponentially cheaper than those, and it's very well tolerated. Real science takes a look at many different approaches to a problem. With COVID-19, some potential treatments and preventatives have been shoved to the curb because the wrong person endorsed them. Studies can also be manipulated to assure desired results. A component in a drug combination might be left out in a study, or a medicine may be used in a higher dose that causes complications and makes it sound as if the drug is dangerous. This is what happened with hydroxychloroquine, a drug that potentiates the antiviral action of zinc. The problem is that zinc was not included in almost all the so-called failed studies of the drug. Hydroxychloroquine's purpose is to potentiate the virus-fighting effect of zinc. In another study, significantly higher doses of the same drug were used than normal, leading to heart complications in some participants. Others used the drug in only critically ill patients, even though the medicine works best in mild cases. I'm not saying hydroxychloroquine is the answer. I'm saying that there are many ways a biased, politicized scientist can get to the result their agenda dictates. If you don't believe this is true, well, maybe you'll at least admit that health authorities are certainly failing to address the mistakes they make and correct the record when they do make those errors. The science is thought by most citizens to be a wholesale agreement among the entire medical community, but this couldn't be farther from the truth. In one example, a New England Journal of Medicine article in July cast doubt on the effectiveness of chloroquines, while another in the International Journal of Infectious Disease the month before claimed they were a very viable option. You want 10 opinions? Talk to 10 researchers. Nor can you depend on published results remaining published. Several studies have been retracted in the New England Journal of Medicine and a number of other prestigious publications in the last year or two. 
Other supplemental options like vitamin D, quercetin, zinc, and others are being ignored or have their detractors among the medical people in power. Few, if any, in a position of authority in public health encourage people to take these holistic preventative measures, all things that help one's immune system combat exposure to viruses like COVID-19. One study showed that 80% of COVID deaths occurred in obese patients. Just working to help obese people lose weight would make a dent in the hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. But do you hear that being recommended in the news? To lose weight, to get down to a normal weight for your height and age? No. All this makes it difficult to know what's real. Are we following the science, really? Or are we following someone's agenda so they can gain some benefit out of it? Maybe Big Pharma or maybe some of the bad actors that are bent on destabilizing our country so they can maybe make a new one. I'll let you decide. When confronted with corruption and dishonesty from what were once trusted authorities, when the most powerful and influential voices on public health matters are engaging in misleading the public with nonsensical decrees, well, it only sows division in our society. Further, when the government imposes its will on the citizenry and violates civil liberties on the basis of biased medical opinions, distrust in the medical establishment spreads like a cancer. I'll tell you this, if we are to expect real science that we can depend on, we have to demand it. We have to scrutinize every study to make sure that the research is transparent, as well as the affiliations and the motivations of those people that are behind it. That includes people like Dr. Fauci. These people are human, and these days, humans in the United States have very strong opinions. So strong, as a matter of fact, that they have little reluctance to cast aside any who disagree no matter how reasonable their opinions and arguments might be. There should be a pro and con discussion of every decision and it should be out in the public. We must consider both the risks to the general population and also to the economy and stability of the nation. There will always be political winners and losers. However, if we allow politics to interfere so powerfully that it makes it unclear where the real science lies, we'll all be losers. What do you think of that? Well, I just want to say that I 100% agree with you, and you could not have said it any better. Yeah, except I garble words and fumble through. It's my dentures. All, <laughs> he doesn't wooden, have dentures. They're wooden. They're, my wooden teeth. <laughs> you don't have wooden, not, not yet. Now, yeah. if the world collapses and I have to fashion you some teeth, I'll use some good wood. Okay. And I'll well, give it a nice polishing so you don't get splinters. I appreciate it. Do we have, <laughs> okay. any, do we have any white paint? <laughs> yeah, we'll paint them bright white. Bright, bright white. <laughs> so they shine. Shine in the at sun. night, right. <laughs> Glow at night. That's right. All right. Off good my, job, honey. Thank you. Off my soapbox, onto something medical. You know, when winter began, I liked to talk about how to treat and prevent issues that are related to cold exposure or or hypothermia, what we call hypothermia. We talk about cold water safety. We discussed that in a previous podcast. But for example, if a boat capsizes or you fall through the ice. And one thing I didn't talk about, however, was frostbite. If left untreated, hypothermia leads to complete failure of various organ systems and death. People who develop general hypothermia, that's what I'm talking about there, due to cold exposure are also vulnerable to other cold-related injuries, however, like frostbite, and what they call immersion foot. Frostbite is a freezing of body tissues, usually occurs in the extremities, but sometimes affects things like the ears and nose, and it occurs in stages that cause more and more damage as they progress. Uh, the first stage is called frostnip. Frostnip is the first stage of frostbite. 
The skin turns red and becomes cold to the touch. Initial symptoms also include a pins and needles sensation, numbness in the area, things like that. Now, rewarming at this stage is effective and can be accomplished by soaking the affected area in warm, not over, let's say, 104 degrees or so, uh, water for about 15 to 30 minutes. Now, if this isn't possible, well, maybe you can just simply put hands under armpits. That might actually help, believe it or not. Superficial frostbite is second stage frostbite, and, and when that happens, the skin begins to lose color. It goes from red to more of a whitish color. It even goes, can be blue uh, as it progresses. As At this point, ice crystals are beginning to form in tissues. That's bad, <laughs> and you can tell that uh, this by swelling and also by a firmness in the, in the area. The texture of the skin becomes hard, and it becomes sort of waxy in appearance. And although frozen, the victim may feel warmth still in the area affected. Rewarming the hands here for at least 30 minutes should begin as soon as you possibly can. Although return to normal may not always be possible, even in superficial frostbite. Some people develop blisters in the damaged area and skin may appear bruised and otherwise discolored. Blue is what I see in more advanced cases. Patients often complain of burning or stinging. That can be treated with ibuprofen while they're healing. Now, although many victims do recover completely from it, others do have permanent issues with, for example, pain or numbness in the affected area. Infection is a possibility. It has certainly in the past required antibiotic therapy. Then there's deep frostbite, otherwise known as third-degree frostbite. Both superficial and deep tissues are affected in this one. In deep frostbite, the skin appears blue, bluish-white, and splotchy. Many people, after time go, goes on a little bit, develop dark, blood-filled blisters within, let's say, the first 24 to 48 hours. They lose sensation and function of nearby muscles as well. These are common consequences of deep frostbite. It also damages circulation to the point that blood clots form. And although rewarming is appropriate, it may indeed not succeed. Blue, if it doesn't, If it doesn't succeed, blue skin turns to black, and that's a condition known as gangrene. Gangrene is the death of tissue resulting from the loss of circulation. Once this happens, amputation may be required to remove non-viable parts before infection sets in. In some cases, the dead tissue actually auto-amputates. It just falls off, but it's hard to predict if that's going to happen. Then there's immersion foot. Immersion foot is a related condition to frostbite. It used to be called trench foot. This condition was seen commonly in soldiers 100 years ago who spent long times in the cold, boggy trenches of World War I. Immersion foot causes damage to nerves and small vessels in the lower extremities due to prolonged time in cool water or cold water. When seen in areas other than the feet, they can call this condition chillblains. Uh, immersion foot appears similar to frostbite, but may have a more swollen, more wet appearance. Rewarming a frostbite or immersion foot injury must be performed correctly to avoid further trauma and improve the chances of a full recovery. Use warm water soaks no more than 104 degrees, as I mentioned, that's 39 degrees Celsius, and use that on the extremity for about 30 minutes or until the skin returns to a red color. It can't be so hot that it's uncomfortable when you place your own hand in it. Although the water shouldn't be excessively hot, it should remain warm, so you have to replace cooling water as needed. 
Other treatment tips don't allow thawed tissue to freeze again. The more often tissue freezes, thaws, and refreezes, the deeper the damage. If you can't prevent your patient from being exposed to freezing temperatures again, you should wait maybe before rewarming, but certainly not more than a day. Uh, you can use four to 600 milligrams of ibuprofen every six to eight hours for pain, and that may help prevent clots and damaged blood vessels, has a mild blood thinning effect. Uh, don't rub or massage frostbitten areas. Doing so results in worse damage to already injured skin, skin, right? For the same reason, you want to prevent the victim from walking on frostbitten toes. You want to avoid the use of heat lamps or fires to treat frostbite. Your patient's numb, can't feel the frostbitten tissue, and you may wind up with significant burns. You can also use body heat to thaw frostbitten tissue. You put mildly frostbitten fingers under your arm, and it may help warm them up. There's controversy as to whether frostbitten areas should be bandaged. Some advocate placing an absorbent padding between frostbitten toes and fingers. Others suggest leaving everything open to air. Note that the practice of using warm soaps to treat frostbite is different from that of general hypothermia, which is best treated with warm, dry compresses. So instead of warm soaks to treat frostbite, you're using, for general hypothermia, warm, dry compresses. Usually these are done in the neck, in the groin, and in the armpit area. Don't forget that prevention avoids a lot of the headaches and heartaches for the survival medic when it comes to frostbite. Make sure people are always dressed appropriately for cold weather. You know, one of the natural substances that can make the survival medic's life easier is clove bud oil. Clove bud oil is a powerful addition with medical benefits as well as dental benefits. Here's Nurse Amy to tell you all about it. So, yes, today we're going to talk about clove oil. Uh, clove actually comes from a tree called Sazygium aromaticum. And what they use is the aromatic flower buds when they bloom. And they extract oil from these, and that's what's used. Um, of course, you can also use um, clove dried, but it doesn't give you really as much of the medicinal benefits as the oil does. One thing you don't want to do is ingest a lot of this oil. It can be toxic. In fact, there's actually not a known amount that's safe to ingest. So today we're only going to talk about using the oil either externally or through um, inhalation. Topically, it's, it's much more safe. Of course, you do need to mix it with a carrier oil because it can be rather strong. And you certainly don't want to put it on really sensitive areas. What are some practical and beneficial ways to use clove oil in your everyday life? And um, I'd be curious to know from you guys what you have actually tried. You know, you can relieve the pain of toothaches. And Joe and I have talked about this a lot in previous shows, and it's in our book too, about the use of clove oil dentally. And I'm going to discuss some of the ways you can use it dentally. Uh, but one way you can use it is just to dab a drop or two on the tooth or the gum that's hurting. Now, some people can mix it with a carrier oil and put that also on a um, piece of gauze or a little dental pellet or a dental roll to hold it in place so it doesn't move all around your mouth. But that actually has been known to help. And, and again, I would love to hear from you guys to find out if you've used this. Um, one interesting thing that I've been reading about is that it can apparently help remineralize teeth when used regularly. And what you want to do is you want to add a little bit, a very little bit, 
to your toothpaste and then you can use your toothpaste every day. Again, you're not just putting a whole lot of this directly on your teeth, you're mixing it with your toothpaste. You can use it as a mouthwash, it's okay. Again, we're still talking about topical here. Clove oil can be used to kill bacteria that may lead to gum disease. So what you wanna do is you wanna swish daily, mix a few drops of the clove oil with some water, stir it up real well, and then you can use it as a mouthwash after you brush and after you flush. It can also be used to address thrush, which may be an issue that we're facing in a post-apocalyptic world when we don't have these wonderful antifungal mouthwashes that we can get from the pharmacy at this point, this may be something that we need to think about as an alternative. Now, you can use it as an acne remedy. Again, you want to blend this with a carrier oil. You want to mix a couple of drops with, say, a, a coconut oil and dab that on the pimples, allow it to dry, and then you can cleanse your face as usual. If you have something really stubborn, you can put a, a little bit on there and just leave it overnight. Again, let's talk about breathing it in, infusing it into the air. You can diffuse your oil using a diffuser to help promote clean air, especially during the times of, of course, pandemics, colder flu seasons. Uh, breathing in the diffused oil can help maybe protect against infection and help fight existing sickness. We do know that uh, breathing in, say, eucalyptus through a steamy oil helps to open up airways. Maybe the clove helps to kill off some bacteria in our airways. Um, it's definitely not proven, but hey, in times where you don't have any other medicine, uh, we are going to look for alternatives and perhaps it, it can work. If your natural deodorant isn't doing the job, you can pair clove oil with a carrier oil and put it on your underarms. The reason we have odors down there is usually a bacterial growth. So since clove oil is an antibacterial, that can help reduce the um, odor that we get from this bacteria just sitting there in that moist, hot area. <laughs> Mix clove oil with water and you can use it as a disinfecting surface spray. You can apply clove oil mixed with a carrier oil, again, like almond oil or coconut oil, to the wrist for supposedly a reduction of blood pressure. Again, I don't have any scientific proof, but in a situation where we need alternative medicines, it's not a bad idea to keep that in mind. You can also swish it in the mouth. Again, it's as a mouthwash, but instead of using it to help your teeth, you can use it, or to kill bacteria in your teeth, you can use it for bad breath. So if someone has chronic bad breath, you may consider after you brush and you floss, make sure you floss because you could have some food in there that's causing that smell. Um, you can do the clove oil mixed with water and a swish and spit. Use clove oil also directly on surfaces uh, to kill mold. Of course, chlorine is more effective, but eventually bleach is going to go bad, whereas our clove oil, if stored properly, properly may last um, a little bit longer. Allow it to dry and then scrub it off. Uh, that may help kill the, the mold and help it come off much, much easier. If you have athlete's foot or another bacterial infection of the foot, you can use clove oil also mixed with the carrier oil to help kill the bacteria that's causing the infection. Make sure you clean your 
bath surfaces and your shower surfaces so that you prevent spreading of this athlete's foot or bacteria to other people or even uh, having another bout of the infection. To help take the sting out of bug bites, you can add clove oil topically, also mixed with the carrier oil. I know I say that every time, but this stuff is pretty strong. If you've ever smelled clove oil, it's it's quite potent. And if, if you put it on, it can burn you. So you want to be really careful and, and mix it and dilute it. If you have morning sickness or even motion sickness, aromatherapy using clove oil could be something that's helpful. You could put it on a piece of material like a gauze square or a piece of like say a handkerchief and hold it over the nose and mouth just as you need. You don't have to keep it there. Take a deep breath, breathe it in, remove the cloth, just breathe some normal air. If you start to feel sick again, bring back the the cloth or the gauze and breathe it in again. You can massage clove and a carrier oil into the scalp. What clove does is it helps stimulate blood flow. You can apply it to the scalp to help increase blood flow and promote and promote healthy hair growth and shiny hair. <laughs> Wear clove oil with a carrier oil as a natural bug repellent. You're going to smell a little funny, but the bugs may stay away. You can also mix it with some water and spray it on as an insect repellent. Again, it's going to have a funny smell, so if everyone understands that you're just trying to do something natural, then just let them know. (laughs) I'm going to smell like clove oil. You can um, swish and gargle with clove oil and water to relieve the pain of a sore throat or also to help uh, calm your voice uh, if you've overused it or from seasonal allergies. And to get a quick boost of mental clarity, diffuse clove oil in your office or take a quick sniff from that cloth that we talked about or gauze or even just straight from the bottle. Inhalation is safe and it may wake you up a little bit. It can increase blood flow and apparently boost mental and cognitive function, which sounds like a great idea for a whole lot of us. Now let's just talk about some cautions. Again, it is is potent. It is strong. Um, it does warrant caution. The eugenol can be hard, which is the main ingredient in clove oil, can be hard in the liver, resulting in damage. It can also have unpredictable results in children. So be very cautious when using clove oil with kids under 18. And don't use it internally without checking with someone who knows about oils. I'd like to say your medical practitioner, but your medical practitioner may know nothing about internal um, digestion or internal use of clove oil. You definitely don't want to use clove oil if you're pregnant or breastfeeding since they're not sure how it can affect fetal development or, or possibly getting your breast milk. If you take blood thinners or other drugs which can have anticoagulant effects, make sure you check with your doctor and ensure that clove oil is safe for you to use. The last thing, just reiterating this, clove can cause skin irritation in certain people. And if you use it without diluting it, it probably can cause irritation in pretty much all of us. So if you notice itching, redness, rashes, or any discomfort, definitely stop using it. I would wash the area really, really well. Maybe use um, hydrocortisone to calm the skin and the irritation. And if you can, seek medical care. Um, If you're purchasing clove oil, please make sure that you're getting 100% 
pure product. Uh, there are certain um, manufacturers out there that claim they have a certification. Frankly, that certification was created by the company that's claiming they have the certification. So it's one hand shaking the other hand from the same body. <laughs> um, I love Mountain Rose Herbs. You're free to go on there. They have all kinds of descriptions. They tell you what area it came from, how they've processed it. Uh, it's a small family-owned business. Everything's in small batches. If you order their dry herbs and you you order a blend, they actually blend them before they send them to you. So it takes a couple of weeks to get to you. So uh, watch out who you get those from. And as far as dental, one other thing that that we know and we have in our book and it's also in where there is no dentist is you can mix a couple of drops of the clove oil which also can be called um, eugenol oil with a little bit of zinc oxide powder and what you want to do is make like a nice paste you want to make sure that wherever you're filling the tooth that you have cleaned that out really well you don't want to cover up some bacteria dead tissue inside of there and block that up you can cause a really bad abscess so clean that out really well it can be a temporary dental filling temporary means it's not going to last forever depending on what you're eating and um, you know how good your paste was and, and how you let it set up is probably how long it's going to last after you put it in bite down so that you get a formation of the teeth from the upper teeth pointing into it so that you don't have an area that your upper teeth are, are chipping into. So you want to make it form the shape of your upper teeth. Uh, that way it'll fit better and maybe last longer. Anyway, this is a short discussion on clove oil and I would love to hear from you guys. Any comments? Have a wonderful day and thank you guys for listening. We appreciate it. I appreciate all the information that you've given us on clove oil. We certainly have a lot of uses, dental and medical, and we appreciate everything you've mentioned. Uh, okay, here's the segment of the show where I take some questions posed to me. This one was done in the past by, on our friend Jack Spirico Survival Podcast. If you guys have questions out there you'd like to hear us address on this podcast, please send us an email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Here we go. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of award-winning books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Chad in San Francisco. San Francisco. <laughs> Very good, Chad. Who writes, Hi, Doc Bones. I recently found a few bottles of erythromycin that expired in 2019. With it suddenly harder to get antibiotics, should I dispose of it? And if so, what's the best way? Or could it still be used? It's been stored at room temperature in the dark. Thanks. By the way, love your book, and I've asked everyone in our group to add it to their group standard list. Wow, thanks so much, Chad. Appreciate it. If your medicine cabinet is full of expired drugs or medications that you want to get rid of, there's more than one way to dispose of them. The DEA actually sponsors a National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day, this year it's April 21st, in communities nationwide where some police stations even will take your expired drugs. The DEA also has drug take-back locations year-round in many municipalities. Just Google DEA Drug Take-Back. And then do the search for the nearest one in your zip code. Mine was about four miles away at a local pharmacy. 
Where a take-back location isn't an option, there are a couple of ways to dispose of medicines at home safely, depending on the drug. The first, and a little controversial, is flushing medicines. Because some medicines could be harmful to others, they have specific directions to immediately flush them down the sink or toilet. Some drugs you really don't want in the water system, though, so check out the FDA's flush list to see what should and what shouldn't be flushed. Drugs that can be flushed have been shown to be negligible in their risk to the environment. Don't flush any medicine that isn't on the flush list. Disposing medicines in household trash is another option. Almost all medicines, except those on the FDA flush list, can be thrown into your trash. These include prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Remove the drugs from their original containers and mix them with something undesirable, like let's say used coffee grounds or kitty litter, in a plastic bag. Scratch off the name of the drug and your name from the container for privacy purposes. And the FDA prefers that you don't crush, by the way, pills or tablets. Chad, what about if you prefer to keep expired drugs just in case there's a disaster and fresh medicines no longer exist? What happens when these drugs pass their expiration date? The short answer is, in most cases, not very much. Pharmaceutical companies have been required to place expiration dates on their products since 1979. But what does that date signify? Officially, the expiration date is the last day that the drug company will certify that their medicine is fully potent. Some believe this means that the medicine in question is always useless or in some way dangerous after that date. This is a false assumption. Expiration dates pertain to the strength of the medicine and not whether it causes effects that are hazardous to your health. You will not grow a horn in the middle of your forehead or drop dead simply because a drug has expired. Most drugs don't suddenly lose all their potency just because they reach their expiration date. What evidence do I have to say this? Years ago, the U.S. military commissioned a study regarding expiration dates. Consider their situation. In warehouses all over the country, they had huge amounts of funds invested in drugs for the strategic national stockpile. Every two years or so, they were faced with the challenge of disposing of mass quantities as these drugs expired. To their credit, they began to wonder if this represented a waste of useful meds. This led the government to begin studies that could determine if it could extend the life of its massive inventory. This evaluation, done in conjunction with the FDA, eventually became known as the Shelf Life Extension Program, SLEP. It tested more than 100 drugs that have been expired for 1 to 15 years, respectively, and found that 90% of them were still fully potent and considered safe. These medicines were mostly the ones in pill or capsule form. The exceptions were liquid medicines nitroglycerin, insulin, epinephrine, antibiotics in liquid form, these in general lost their potency soon after the date on the package. This data can be hard to find, by the way, but it is online in the July 2006 issue of the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Even more incredibly, in 2012, researchers at the University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy, found cases of 14 different medications in a retail pharmacy in their original unopened packaging. These cases were labeled with expiration dates 28 to 40 years old. And guess what? 12 out of 14 ingredients were at least 90% potent. These results can be found in the October 2012 issue of Archives of Internal Medicine, a highly respected periodical. As such, even the government will issue emergency use authorizations for expired drugs when the fresh ones are in short supply during epidemics and other emergencies. 
Chad, planning ahead, we've got to consider all the alternatives in the effort to stay healthy in hard times. Don't ignore any option that will help you achieve that goal. Of course, do your own research and come to your own conclusions. That is what you should always do. In the meantime, get fresh meds while they exist. In the future, I'll talk about how to tell if a med has degraded and the proper storage of meds to get the longest shelf life possible. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time that we have. Uh, You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast. For Amy Alton, I'm Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.